Well, good morning. It's a beautiful day. I loved it. Walk outside, smell that fresh summer air, and the sun shining. Life is good. How is everybody today in one collective state? I know you can't all answer me individual because we don't have time. I wouldn't be able to get to my message. How are we doing? Pretty good. Hope you're doing all right. I want to take a moment and um, welcome back Mr. Jason Harris. Jason has been on sabbatical for uh, six weeks or so, and so we're really glad to have him back around here. Things will probably start functioning more normally again, so we're happy for that. Uh, Jason had a good time, so be sure and welcome him and his family back. Um, so we're glad, glad for that. Uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the beautiful place that we live and the beautiful weather outside today. We are truly blessed in so many ways. And God, we just want to thank you for that this morning. I thank you for this this extended family that is represented here today and the community that we're a part of. I just pray your blessing upon them today. Father, I pray that you would Guide me by your spirit this morning as we look at the scriptures and just talk about some of these realities that we see. And Lord, I just pray that you would help help me today do it. And, and God, I pray for the hearts and minds of everyone that hears today, Lord, that the scripture would go in and do the work you send it out to do. Because that's really where the power is, is in your word. So Father, I pray that you'd work in us and through us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We've been talking in recent weeks, and we'll continue to talk for the foreseeable future, surrounding the concept or the idea of the kingdom of God. When Jesus came, he preached that the kingdom is at hand. John the Baptist was preaching that the kingdom of God was at hand. And it's something that is relevant in our lives even today, because when we become followers of Jesus Christ, we transition into an invisible kingdom. And there's a lot of teaching in the scripture about this kingdom, and we're going to continue to unpack that this week and in the days ahead. I want to just review a few different things uh, from previous weeks. The kingdom of God, last week particularly I was focusing on, is, is where Jesus is the king. Wherever the king has authority, that's where his kingdom is. And when I give him lordship of my life, I become a citizen of his kingdom. I enter in, not necessarily in a physical way, but in a supernatural, invisible way. I begin to participate in an authority and in a system, an economy, a culture, all that come from the king himself. It's the kingdom of God. And it's where Jesus is on the throne. And when I make that decision to make him the king in my life, I enter the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk about some of those things. And really, if, you could, if I could just let you behind the curtain a little bit to see one of the bigger picture concepts, for me anyway, with preaching on these things. And Tyler's going to continue next week talking about it. But it's, it's the idea that there's a culture within the kingdom. And we talked about the idea that you could know all the laws of another nation, all the rules and regulations, but you still might not necessarily understand the culture of that kingdom. So if you went to, for example, we talked about South Africa or we talked about England, places where we have relationships currently, and you might know all of the rules and regulations of that nation, but when you go there and you find the way those people live and conduct themselves and relate to one another, it's very different, very different. 
And we also talked about the idea that um, you know you can have two believers, two Christians that doctrinally have exactly the same orthodox Christian view and entirely different attitudes. And that attitude begins to, to determine what the culture of a group of people is. And so just because you ascribe to a certain knowledge or a certain law doesn't necessarily mean that you're reflecting what the kingdom is. Jesus had a heart. He had personality. He had an attitude. He had a way of relating to the world that is very important for you and I to look at and absorb because from the king we derive the culture with which we're going to operate. The way we're going to treat each other, the way we're going to communicate, the, the way we're going to relate in all the different ways, the way we're going to do life together, that culture of the kingdom is so important to understand because it then shapes who Mount Helena Community Church is. When we look at the kingdom that we see in the, gospel, in the scriptures and the culture with which an attitude of the Jesus operated, that begins to inform the way you and I live as a body of believers. The definition of culture, the one that I've been operating off of for this message and, and will for the weeks ahead, is that a culture is a set of shared attitudes, values, goals, and practices that characterize a group. And today I want to more specifically dive in in John chapter 14, so we can get started on that PowerPoint. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you do know him and have seen him. And this is what I want to focus on today, is particularly this first sentence that Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. We want to focus on our king and learn some more about him and his kingdom. Before I get into those three things in particular, I just want to point out the second verse here, or, or the second part of the verse there. No one comes to the Father except through me, that second sentence. No one comes to the Father. There's an objective here that Jesus has come to the earth to fulfill, and it's to bring mankind back to its creator. It's a ministry of reconciliation that Paul teaches us about in Corinthians. Jesus came to reconcile a broken creation back to the Father. Okay, a frequent subject that we talk about around here, but it's very important for that to be in the foundation of our thinking, that all, all of this, what Jesus has done, God coming in the flesh, is to bring mankind back to himself through the forgiveness of sins. Sin was introduced in the world and man fell. Jesus comes to reconcile that discrepancy in the accounting, if you will, and bring mankind back to himself. Ultimately, our journey is toward the Father, a reconciliation with our Maker. Jesus is the way. Greek word for way there is hodos. Jesus is the way. He's the other ways this word gets translated is the path or the road, the highway, the street, or even the journey. Jesus is the road. He's the journey. He's the path. He's the one 
with which we navigate. This idea of Jesus being the way implies that there is something to be navigated. Now, when you think about navigating something, it implies this idea of movement. I mean, if you're on a road and you're traveling down the road, there's an action taking place. We talk about life being a journey or a road, and we're, we're taking action in a certain direction. I think it's really important, this idea that Jesus is not some sort of immediate destination necessarily, but that once we give our lives to Christ, we spend the rest of our days on this earth journeying with Him. He's the way back to the Father. He's not just the toll booth. He's not just not the place where you throw your money in and keep going. He is the road. There's a constantness, if I can make up a word. Constantness. I think you made up a word too. Rougher. Rougher? What did you say? More rough. Is rougher a word? Rough. Yeah, rough. Dogs go rough. Rough. So we're making up words around here today. But there's a constant to this idea of Jesus being the road. And I think in a lot of ways in, in, in our faith, sometimes we view Jesus as uh, just the toll booth, just the gatekeeper. And as long as I have that one conversation with him once in my life, uh, that's, my, that's my ticket into heaven. But in fact, Jesus calls us to something much deeper than that. He calls us, calls us to walk something out with him, a journey, a road to the Father a road that is transformative in nature. We begin a process. When we enter this kingdom of God, I, I used the description uh, for you a couple weeks ago, and it's just one of the images in my mind when I talk about this, is this idea, like if you were talking about just a, a fantasy-type kingdom in a, in a novel with dragons and knights and cool stuff like that, you would imagine, and we talked about the cit a citadel uh, that I visited once in Europe, and this idea that once you entered the walls of that community or that, that kingdom or that citadel, you see commerce taking place. There's restaurants and there's, there's business happening and there's people to interact with. And we begin to participate. If you were to move into a new place, a lot of you have had to move communities in your life or to different locations. You get there and you start to see how does this work? How do I interact with the people? How do I participate in this economy? Because it becomes a part of your everyday life. And it has to. You can't move someplace new and not participate in the culture. You have to get a job. You have to go buy groceries. You have to do the basics of life to survive. And the kingdom of God is very much like that. When we cross the boundary, Jesus talks about entering the kingdom of heaven. Giving the idea that there's some sort of entrance or transition of location. And Jesus is the way to transition locations there. And once we do that, once we enter the kingdom and start participating in that culture, we begin to change. We begin to grow in our understanding. We begin to become an intricate part of that society or community that we're part of. We need to see ourselves in that same way in this kingdom of God, in the church, in the way that we interact with one another as participants in something together, all playing a part and all establishing a culture Together. Jesus is the way. It implies that there's a destination. It implies that there's a transition taking place, a transaction, a transition in location, if you will. Other words that come to mind the path, the direction, door, access, compass. Jesus is the compass, He points the way. 
if I'm walking down the road, I generally try and stay on the road. If I wander off the road, I end up in trouble. I want to stay on that path because it takes me where I need to go. That's who Jesus is. John chapter 10, verse 7, Jesus is one of his more hostile encounters with the Pharisees. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is debating with the Pharisees here. This was kind of a controversial message of the day, particularly with the Romans, not necessarily the Jews, but it was offensive because it was, you know, it was offensive to a pluralistic or pagan culture of the first century Roman Empire and is perhaps even more so offensive today. There's a massive push for a universalism, an idea that Jesus isn't the only way. There are other ways. There are many paths that lead to God. But that isn't what Jesus taught. And so being Christians, those that follow Christ, we believe his words. When he teaches us this, that he is the only way. Now, we don't always necessarily know. We know that he is just, and he will judge with justice at the end of time. And so I, I think, you know, I've tried to encourage us with this many, many times, that we need to be really careful that we don't put ourselves in the seat of eternal judgment of the world and the people around us. That we aren't the ones that are just making these determinations that that person's going to hell, That group of people are going to be judged. Those people are wrong. We have to be really careful about what we do, particularly when discussing the eternal destination of other humans. Jesus is just, and he's a lot more merciful and compassionate than you are. And thank God. But he's also very just. So we have to be careful that we don't then wield that as something to destroy other people's lives. But it is the truth that we believe that he is the way. He is the door. He is the shepherd to the sheep. He's the one who makes the way for us. This was hard for society to swallow as as the gospel spread into the Greek world, the Roman Empire, I guess, would be better, better put that way, that it was really offensive to them because they had multiple gods, they had multiple temples. This idea that there was only one God and one way was highly controversial. A couple other thoughts about the idea that Jesus being the way implies that you are not. Thank God. If he's the way, you are not the way. And I would encourage you every morning when you wake up, thank God that you're not the way. Because we would all be in serious trouble if that were the case. There's something very liberating to the idea that we do not earn our salvation. When Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light, those kind of things. A lot of times I, I'm like, oh, I have a hard time believing that some days. Because I feel that burden. But I think there's something very real about the, what Jesus is talking about here, about the idea that you don't have to carry the weight of your punishment. You have to carry the weight of your sin. 
You don't have to carry that upon you. He took it upon himself on the cross. So when we have the forgiveness of sins, it doesn't mean that life is suddenly easy. That this doesn't play out in our reality. Life is difficult. But the yoke is easy in that if every day I wake up, no matter what happens on this earth, the burden of judgment has been lifted from me by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. Suddenly everything becomes bearable when I look at it in that light. His yoke is easy. Thank God that he's the way and you are not. I am that I am and you are not that you're not, right? Other gods are not. Gods, I don't, you know, we don't think of it in terms of the biblical times where people had little silver or gold idols or things like that and they'd build little shrines and they would actually literally worship objects. You know, we kind of, I think a lot of people in our society, we don't think much about that or kind of roll our eyes and wonder what that's all about. But the reality is uh, anything that you worship is a god. And we can worship a lot more than mute idols. We worship things like money. We worship things like power. Uh, when we're addicted to something, you know, we, we're worshiping it. It becomes our God. So when we look to other things, they aren't the way. But we're tempted by them, aren't we? Knowledge is not. Wisdom is not. Except that Jesus himself is the ultimate in knowledge. And Jesus himself is the ultimate in wisdom. But a lot of times we get caught up in this thing of, my knowledge is better than your knowledge, therefore my way is better than your way. But at the end of the day, none of that's going to hold up under the judgment of God. It will be Jesus Christ who stands in your place that is sufficient for you. Religious practices are not the way. I think that we, you know, there's a lot of healthy things that we do on a regular basis. We read our Bibles, we pray, we, we do communion. Sometimes we have liturgical type prayers that people do and we get into our routines and our regular practices. Those are actually really, really healthy. They're really healthy. There was a lot of recital of history and things like that that the Jews used to do. And I think in, you know, in a lot of the church world they do that as well. Why? To remind us of what the truth is. That's the important part about religious conduct. Now religious, you know, in a lot of Christian communities has become kind of a bad word, and it's not necessarily. Uh, but when our practices and our habits and the way we go about things becomes our substitute for relationship with God, then we've got it out of order. Your relationship with Jesus Christ, your relationship to God is the ultimate priority. Everything else should fall in order under that. But when we start to put, I just have to go to church because going to church is going to get me into heaven. No, you've got it backwards. Jesus is the one that gets you into heaven. We come together as the body, the church, because of Jesus. Because we want to worship together and because he instructs us to do so. But simply attending a service doesn't save me. Simply reading my Bible doesn't save me. Reciting a common prayer every day of the week doesn't save me. Okay, But it is all meant to direct me towards the one who does save. Who is Jesus Christ? Religious practices are not the way. This road that we walk with Jesus, Him being the, the road, the path, the, the access, if you will, to the Father, to the kingdom of God, it really happens in this wonderful moment 
which is really the crux of our faith, and it's the idea that we are born again. Jesus teaches Nicodemus early in John, must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. It becomes a controversial word or phrase, born again. What does that really mean? How does a man be born a second time? Nicodemus is confused. Most of you know the story. But really, Jesus is talking about a rebirth in, in, in the inner man, that the old us dies. We leave it behind. It, in a way, you know, it's so beautiful and important that you wrestle with this thought that you died on the cross with Jesus. Okay, I realize it's kind of an extreme statement. And it sounds kind of radical, and it is metaphorical to some extent. But when, when the only way you can get out of the sinful life is to die without Jesus. When I die and I leave this body, I finally get to leave the sinful nature behind. But now, even while I'm still alive, the old me can die with Jesus on the cross when I give my life to him. When I accept that gift. This is really what's going on under the surface with salvation is that Jesus uh, you are dying vicariously through Jesus. It's so important to recognize the power of that decision to place your faith in Christ, to repent and go a different direction, to leave behind this sinful nature. Now, we spend the rest of our lives here on earth dealing with that and coming up against it and God transforming us as we leave that behind. But it, it is very, it, but it's more than imagery. It's like, you know, if you, I, I was struggling this week to think of a way to describe this, but, you know, if you could imagine the uh, whole system, you know, in heaven as a little bit like the legal system, like you might be guilty, but once the judge says you're innocent, your record shows that you're innocent. You ever get a speeding ticket and they say, well, we'll take it off your record in a couple months or years or whatever if you don't get any more tickets? Am I the only one that's done that? <laughs> Some of you are like, we weren't quite that lucky. It's, it's, kind of, it's kind of like that. It's kind of like your legal status. You might have actually been guilty, but it gets wiped off your record. And when you place your life in Christ and he forgives your sin, your legal status in heaven is that you are forgiven, that you are innocent, that you died, actually, in a way. You died with him on the cross. The old Jew was gone. It's just there's something that is worth taking the time to let that soak into your heart and mind and meditate upon it because it's got powerful implications behind it. And in that moment, that's when you took that path into the kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God, and began to participate in something that you couldn't otherwise participate Kingdom of God. It's an adoption. Sometimes if, you, if you've been close to a situation where a child did not have parents and then has a family and then gets adopted, it's such a beautiful, wonderful thing for that child's life. And if you've been close to a situation like that, you know how powerful that is. And that's what happened for you and I when we give our lives to Christ. And that's why we want other people to hear the good news. It's why we want to influence the community around us, our friends, our family, to find 
this healthy transition into the kingdom of God to find that salvation. It's why we need to be evangelistic, heralds of good news wherever we go, because God loves people. He's using us to reach them with this message. The transition into the kingdom implies the leaving of another kingdom, which we've talked about in weeks gone by, and it presents us with a tension we experience in our day-to-day lives. We often use the expression, in the world, not of the world. The idea of being in the world and not of the world, by the way, is not a scripture in and of itself, just so you know. Don't quote scripture and say, doesn't the Bible say be in the world, not of the world? Not specifically, but it is consistent with the teaching of the scripture. John, as you'll notice, a lot of these scriptures are from John's writings, and he does focus on this subject quite a bit. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, and that's why the world hates you. I spent quite a bit of time focusing on this in earlier weeks. First uh, John chapter 12, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. This idea that if we give preference to the world kingdom, the world system, worldly culture, being the, the values, the practices, the goals of a worldly system, if we give preference to those rather than the preference of the kingdom, then we have an issue going on inside of us that God wants to purge out of us. So there is a very real thought that we have to leave behind a worldly pattern of life. But it is a tension because we have to live here still. Paul talks about it. He said, like in one case he says, don't have anything to do with, and he's talking about people that are basically living sinful lives. And he says, I'm not talking about the people of the world. Otherwise you'd have to leave this world. So Paul's saying that don't hang around with sinful people. And he goes, I'm not talking about the people of the world. I'm, he's talking about the people in the church that were corrupting what was going on in the church, that by their behavior, they were corrupting the behavior of the people around them and um, marginalizing truth. And Paul was very stern about how to deal with that. But when it comes to the people of the world, we're actually, we, we don't separate ourselves from that in the sense of, being around people like that. In fact, we want to reach those people. We want to be a positive influence in the world. That's why we, that's why they're, you know, we don't run to the hills and build a commune and separate ourselves that much. That thinking is what drives a lot of communities um, around the world where they not only separate themselves, they separate themselves from the world literally where, you know, we see this in things like, uh, Amish type societies and things like that, where it's like we're going to remove ourselves so much from the world that we're not even going to have electricity or automobiles or we're going to go live in these places that are totally isolated from the world. But we don't believe that actually lines up with Scripture. You're called to be an influence in a significant way in the world. And Jesus was the same way. He was accused often of being the friend of sinners. Why? Because he was reaching in a healthy way into people's lives. With good news. So he is the way. He's the way out of the world system into a kingdom system, which gives us a lot to think about, about the way we live and operate in the world. 
in the world, not of the world terminology implies that we are in the world physically, in location, in day-to-day life, but of the world has to do with identity. Our identity is not with the world kingdom or the world system. In fact, when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees here uh, in the earlier passage that we read um, about... um, Never mind. I'm going to get to that in a minute. Sorry. All right. I am the way and the truth. The truth. What is truth? Remember last week when we looked at Jesus standing on trial before Pilate. Pilate ends the conversation with this question. What is truth? And he goes and walks outside and he says to the Jews, I don't find anything wrong with this man. Now, if you know Greek philosophy, which had a significant influence on Roman philosophy, you could imagine that there was this like, what is truth and all these contemplative types of questions that we still ask ourselves today. And it's still a very relevant issue today. But Jesus said he is the truth. Truth. Aletheia. Truth. Not, but not merely truth as spoken, like telling the truth, but truth of an idea, a reality, sincerity, truth in the moral sphere, divine truth revealed to man, straightforwardness. It translates to other words like certainly truth and certainty or certainly coming from the same Greek word. Also other words like most, rightly. When we talk about something being true, you might be getting a little tired of my analogy here, but if I aim my bow and arrow for a target and it flies true, it flies in a direction straight where I want it to go. If I'm framing a wall in a house, is it true? Is it plumb or a foundation? Is it true? So it's more than just speaking the opposite of a lie. It's actually where we get the idea of lie. It's the other way around. It's the non-right. So we have the truth that we speak, or if we deviate from the truth, it is an untruth, it's a lie. We talk about this idea that God himself is truth. God himself is love. Jesus is truth. Anything that gets off of that alignment and is not true is not of God. And this is what happened in creation. I'm sorry if I just keep talking about this week in and week out. I'm actually not sorry. It's so, so important that it's deep in you to understand how this all began. God is perfection. He's perfect. And every time we're traveling in a direction towards him and participating in his ways in an accurate way, there's life that comes from that. There's health that comes from that. There's right things that happen. We want to stay true to, in alignment with. And you know where I'm going. Sin is misalignment. That's really what it is, literally. It's when something is pulled out of straight. Out of straight, we use the word crooked. When something becomes crooked, it breaks away from the true, square, plumb, accurate, certain, actual, real thing. It becomes sin, which leads us to this idea that evil in and of itself is not evil is not self-existent. Okay, there 
I think there's a lot of ideas that, you know, there's God and there's Satan, and they're like dual realities that are combating one another. It's called dualism, that there's good and evil, and there's an equal push and pull of both. That's not true. God is ultimate. Satan only exists. Evil only exists. Sin only exists as a perversion of what is true. It derives its uh, nature, its being, its identity, only by perverting what is already real. You get that? It isn't self-existent. And it's important for us to understand that because in our journey, we want to be pulling ourselves in alignment with what is true. What is the truth? Because the truth is going to pull me closer to God. And something that deviates from the truth is going to pull me further away from God. So when I buy into something that's not true, I have a bigger gap to deal with in my relationship with God. Of course, we can overreact to the situation where we start to believe that we've got the monopoly on what's right. I'm right. They're wrong. Like, ah, I think we need to be careful about how we wield the idea that we're going to be right. We are on a journey, and we will always be on a journey. And so will everybody else. So we need to have some grace. In Greek culture, the idea of truth was um, synonymous for reality. It's the opposite of illusion. Okay, so truth in, in, in the Greek language was reality and, and really drawing its distinction as the opposite of something that's an illusion. Jesus is not an illusion. He's the reality. He is the way and he is the truth. He is the one who sets the course straight. He's the one who brings things into alignment. We find that in him because he is God in the flesh. All good things come from him, not just truth, but love, justice, righteousness, because he is God in the flesh. It's interesting that in a basic way, we all desire truth. We don't like the false. We don't like it when someone lies to us, do we? Why? Why is that basic thing deep down inside of us? We're made in the image of God. Our original design was a reflection of the perfect one. And when we sense imperfection, it's frustrating to us. It's a natural human thing and really draws attention to the idea that you came from a perfect state and are no longer in it. It's why we have an awareness of sin or why we even talk about evil. Because in our basic human nature, there's something in us that rejects the false. So when someone tells us a lie, we're disgusted by it. But why? Does it really matter? Yeah, because it's not true. It's out of alignment. And then we have things like trust that become an issue. And whether or not there's a reality to what's going on. It's in our basic created nature that we have a sense of there's something better. Because we're of a fallen race. We're easily tempted by the false, but wisdom teaches us that truth reaps a better crop. Jesus said to the Jews who believed in him, who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This is John chapter 8. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. This is a context I wanted to talk about a few minutes ago, where Jesus is debating with the Pharisees, and he's saying, if you know the truth, the truth will set you free. And the Jews, the Pharisees were there, 
They're like, what are you talking about? We're sons of Abraham. We've never been slaves of anyone. How could we be set free? And Jesus goes on to talk to them about, you're a slave to sin. You're, you're, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. Whatever you, in whatever way you sin, you're a slave to that. You're enslaved by it. And they became angry with him about this. And ultimately, through this whole discourse of Jesus with them, he ultimately tells them, he says, your father's not Abraham, your father's the devil. Because you do what he does. You lie. And you murder. He was a murderer from the beginning. Wow, they did not like him after that. Nor would we if we were accused of such a thing. But Jesus is bringing this idea that there's truth and it's going to set you free from this bondage. And for that, we are thankful today. Fall of man began with a lie, the twisting of the truth, pulling out of alignment. The brokenness of this world is founded upon deception. Therefore, we desire what is true. Jesus told us the truth about many things. Uh, I'm just going to read a brief quote from a devotional I happened to read this week. It says, He is the source and standard of truth. The one whose revelation in Scripture and in nature form a sure foundation on which to stand. Since Jesus is the truth, we are not engaging in wish fulfillment when we believe in him. Instead, we are receiving divine truth. He is fully trustworthy. And because of this, we can trust every word of Scripture. For Jesus affirms that God himself inspired the prophets and apostles. The Scriptures are truth. We know this because the truth, Jesus Christ has confirmed them. If it's true that Jesus is the truth, then we can believe what he says. And if we know what the truth is, we, we live our lives on the basis of what we know is true, generally speaking. If we believe something is true, that's the way we live our lives, according to what we actually believe to be true. Lastly, Jesus is the life. Zoe, Zoe, life. Both of physical or present life and of spiritual, particularly future existence. The Helps Word Studies Guide had a good way of putting it. I really enjoyed their definition of Zoe. Life, physical and spiritual, all life throughout the universe is derived, that is, it always only comes from and is sustained by God's self-existent life. The Lord intimately shares his gift of life with people creating each in his image, which gives all the capacity to know his eternal life. This whole thing we call life only exists because God exists, because he gives it. He is the source of life. In the book of Job, chapter 34, verses 14 and 15, this little passage I ran across a couple years ago, and I love it. If he, he being God, were to set his heart to it and withdraw his spirit and breath, all flesh would perish together and mankind would return to dust. We have no life apart from God. Even those that disregard God completely, the only reason they have life is because God breathed that into creation, because he gave it to us. 
And that reflection of his eternal self-existent life shines within us. It's why we, you know, when we're healthy and have a right view of things, we love life. We view life as precious. Because God is the source of our life, and it's part of our image of him. Jesus also said, yet a little while, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me, because I live, you also will live. So just like you died like he died, you left the old life behind, the sinful nature behind on the cross through the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, so also because he rose from the dead to eternal life, you also will rise to eternal life as well. What a great gift from God. Transition through transformation. We talked about Jesus being a path. talked about going into the kingdom, becoming a part of it. Jesus is the transition, that life, that transformed life is our access to God. Something the world needs desperately and we need to live in on a daily basis. Jesus' authority is life-giving. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, we, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus' attitude towards us as our high priest, as our king, as, as the ruler of this kingdom we're a part of, he can empathize with our weakness. He's put himself on our level in that way. And because of that, he has a great, he's demonstrated a great compassion and mercy for us. And we also should do likewise. This last verse, I loved this since I was a young man. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 4. And John just starts out his gospel so poetically. Uh, I just love how it's written. He says, in him, him being Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. Jesus is the life. That life is the light to all of mankind everywhere we go, and who we interact with, and who we minister to. If we want to be those that are walking in that life and experiencing the fruitfulness of that life, every single one of us needs to challenge ourselves to go to Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, by praying to him regularly, by studying his word regularly, by interacting with one another and encouraging him Encourage one another in the same way that he would. In the same compassion he had. In the same life he gives. We also then should be doing that for one another and challenging ourselves to be drawing near to him. He is the way. Coming to church is not exactly the way. Reading your Bible by itself is not exactly the way. Information by itself is not exactly the way. It's him ultimately. It all points to him. He's the one whose feet we need to lay hold of at the throne for the mercy and the grace we need for every day of our lives. Would you stand, please? If you've never really, very deliberately, or in reality, made a decision to make Jesus the Lord of your life, it really is that simple. That if the words I'm saying ring true in your heart, and you believe the scriptures, but you've never really said, God, I want to follow you. I want to lay my life down for you. 
and have you become the Lord, then I would encourage you, today's a great day to do that. It's a great day to die to the old and embrace the new in Christ. And if you wanted to pray or talk about that, I would be happy to do that with you after the service today. Don't, don't ever miss the opportunity. For those of you that have been believers for years, don't ever miss the opportunity to say that to people. Be a person who brings that opportunity into others' lives. Father, we thank you for this morning and beautiful day. Thank you for my family here. All these people that have been adopted just like me. And we're so grateful that despite our weaknesses and inability to save ourselves and inability to be perfect, you are perfect. And you continue to transform us. We thank you for that. I pray you continue to move in power amongst us. And bless each one as they go today. In Jesus' name, amen.